BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. This is the Gem of All Mechanisms podcast. My name is Brian Runciman and I'm speaking today to Dame Wendy Hall. Uh, hello, Wendy. How are you? Uh, I'm, well, as fine as any of us are in this horrible time, but yeah, fine. Absolutely. Um, I, I was going to make a list of all your different uh, jobs, but I don't think I'm going to do that. But um, we know you're, you're a former head of BCS. I've got you down at the moment, UK AI skills champion. And of course, you've got a book coming out, which we'll talk about in a moment. What's your favourite hat at the moment? Well, I'm always a professor of computer science at Southampton. I've, you know, I've been that since 1994. That's the day job. And that's if for someone, you know, on a radio interview live and they say how to introduce you, it's Professor at, you know, at Southampton. That's, so that's the hat I always wear. Okay. And now I'm a Regis professor. Um, and there's only one Regis chair of computer science in the UK and it's in Southampton. Um, and Nick Jennings uh, was the first holder of it. And he, uh, when he left us to go to Imperial, um, the university decided that it should be me. Although I wasn't that keen, I wanted to get new blood in. But hey, um, uh, it fits quite well on my shoulders, having been at Southampton a long time. And so, and that, so there, that, that's that's. The, and I, of course, I run the the the. I'm executive director of the Web Science Institute, which is my having been head of school and dean in my time, uh, I now run an interdisciplinary institute uh, all about web science, which is one of my passions. So, you know, that's the day job. And then there's all the other stuff like the AI work I've done for the government and the um, AI council, the, the skills champion piece. I can talk a bit about that because that's quite active at the moment. Um, I just got the book. Uh, there's so many things I do. Uh, in terms of, uh, I'm chair of the Ada Lovelace Institute. You know, I'm on a lot of boards and advise a lot of government departments, and I do a huge amount internationally, which of course has been a bit, um, what's the word? My wings have been clipped. It's been over tailed. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, I was uh, installed this morning um, as a distinguished visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Okay. All on Zoom, of course, and I really wish I could have been there, but, you know, uh, still a great honour to have. And I, I, I still really enjoy the international um, collaboration and advisory work I do. But it's that's you can talk to people on Zoom, but it's harder to get to know people yeah. uh, internationally on, on Zoom. So that's a bit quieter than it was. I hope it will come back again. Do you um, do you find that you're getting more done? I mean, you you do loads anyway, but are you getting more done, or would you, do you do you welcome the decompression that the travel used to give you? Well, I find that um, firstly, jet lag is replaced by time zone. So if you do something in China or Singapore, it has to be early in the morning, or sometimes very unsociable hours. I'm on a review panel for for grant proposals in Singapore. And the next meeting is 11 o'clock at night till two o'clock in the morning on UK time. Right. Right. Oh, and well. it, it's not an easy meeting. We're reviewing grant proposals. So we're all having to talk um, quite intensely about uh, the proposals we've read with the other reviewers. It's not easy. And then, of course, if you do anything uh, west of here in the US particularly, then you have to be up later in the evening sometimes. Yeah. So, you, you, as I say, you replace jet lag with... Um, time zone differences and I I don't know which is harder because jet lag is hard but somehow 
you know if you're in the east you 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 wake up in a fog but you have a coffee and the sun's shining and you get out there and yeah find that um it's so dispiriting sitting here in the middle of the night doing an international meeting it's it's really difficult to to get the rest get rest in the day and then you know it's not like a night shift as such you just have to make sure you're awake for those hours and and I find that it's just it's just dispiriting being on your own it's dark and you know so I find that depressing you know you haven't got I used to love part of it was I loved the traveling piece yeah other people visiting other countries you know and and without without that then the meetings can be rather a bit of a chore you know Mm. This was must up enthusiasm sometimes, I should imagine. It is. And and the other thing is that what uh, all of us have done, I'm sure that you're the same, is we just have, you know, when we first went into this last year, it was quite a novelty to have a few Zoom meetings and be able to just walk to your computer from, you know, your living room and it was all uh, bring a cup of tea with you. And it was all a sort of, and you had, you know, rest. But what I found is that my day... If I let it, my day would just be eight, nine, ten hours of Zoom without breaks because it's just piles in. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's easier to arrange meetings because people are not traveling to places. Um, we just do more of them. Yeah. And it's Zoom tiredness is a funny, it's a different sort of tiredness to other. It's it's neither physical nor mental tiredness. It's something different or a combination of the two. And it's the sitting in front of the screen and having to force yourself to get up have a break take some exercise you know, drink enough water and I find I'm just exhausted I've got more meetings I'm doing more than ever I'm busier than ever and I'm just exhausted in the evenings so well you know yeah I can definitely understand so let's talk about some of the stuff you're doing because although obviously you're finding it difficult at times we're all quite interested in it so tell <laughs> us a little bit about the tell us a bit about the AI championing first of all well that uh, you know that's um I think that's uh, it, it, I enjoy it, and uh, I think it's it's important uh, that that every country has an AI strategy. I'm very privileged to be part of developing the UK's strategy, and of course I did the the, the first review I co-authored with um, Jerome Pacenti in 2017, October 2017. So that's um, uh, well, it's four years ago this October. Mm. Um, uh, and that led to um, the AI sector deal and, and, and uh, in the industrial strategy for the government at the time, Theresa May's government that was, and Greg Clark was the business secretary. And so they they adopted our plan and uh, part, you know, uh, a lot of things flowed from that, including money to be spent on developing, you know, my, my focus was... Um, the skills part, um, Tabitha Goldstub was brought in as the chair of the council and she focuses more on the business side of things. But we we, we share it. And and um, the uh, part of the review was that there, there would be an AI office for AI, which is, um, you know, is, is established and um, uh, operating um, and an AI council to advise the office for AI and the government. And that's now established and operating. Um, and I was I was named the AI skills champion as part of that, um, which it just means I have the lead in terms of uh, um, the skills piece. But everybody pitches in and on the council. Um, and, and so that was 
So I say, um, last summer, that it was three years since the review came out and we decided we needed an update because everything moves so quickly, uh, not just because of COVID, but AI does move very quickly. It needed an update, new government. And so we persuaded the government to let us, we produced a, a new roadmap for AI in the UK, which was the council, the, the council did the work for that, published through the Office for AI. That was published in uh, February this year. Um, and then as a result of that, um, in, um, well, sometime after that, so it must have been March, I suppose, the, the Secretary of State, um, Secretary of State of DCMS and Bayes um, uh, announced there would be a new national AI strategy, which is a really, you know, a look at how far have we come in the last three years, what's worked, what hasn't worked, and what do we need to do now? And next to keep ourselves, you know, at the level we want to be in terms of um, uh, AI uh, in uh, across every sector in uh, in the UK and what, competing internationally. And what's your perception of how we are doing uh, uh, competing internationally? I, I, I hate league tables, but there is a global index of AI that the Canadians. Uh, tortoise media i think do it but they the canadians started and we are third in that league you can guess who the top two are the us and china um i think it, the thing to remember about ai always and this is what we said a, a lot about in the first review we have to keep saying you know we have the uk has it, it bats above its weight scientifically anyway I, when the government talk about becoming a global so, uh, superpower in science we are a superpower in science already we have to continue to develop and, and evolve and maintain that but we have uh, two universities more than that that are regularly appear in the top 10 of universities in the world and in terms of AI you know Turing was here uh, if, you, if you think that uh, credit Turing with kicking the whole thing off with um, can machines think and and um, and then of course we our, our top universities have um, always uh, been batting at the highest levels in AI and many of the AI superstars started here they might have been exported to the US um, but uh, along their careers like Jeffrey Hinton um, uh, neural networks fame but you know we, we we are we are our legacy in AI and research um, uh, is is fantastic and also mm -hmm. in startups, a very good technical startup culture in the UK, successive governments have backed it. I mean, who knows what the fallout from COVID is on that. And, and the, we, we always have a struggle with, with getting the, the big investment in and, and scaling up. But in terms of a startup culture for innovative uh, applications or development of new AI technology coming out of research ideas, um, we have a fabulous, we have much, you know, we used to say th something like twice as many AI startups in the UK than the rest of Europe put together. So that's the sort of scale. So those two things, we, we mustn't forget that we bat above our weight in, a, in AI. And the other thing we have a leadership on very much, people look to us for trustworthy systems and um, fairness and um, work in terms of um, AI ethics, data data governance and stewardship uh, which we can come back to because that's something I'm, I'm doing a lot of at the moment and I, there's a there's a, there's a role in the world we can we can play in leadership in that area just as we have done with financial 
services and regulation in that we can we can do that with AI and, and data. So um, if we if we can keep up the pace. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. Now, let me ask you as well on the specific skills perspective you have then. Um, are, are we doing OK with that, with, with, with the um, with the um, with the university pipeline, with, with, with the skills in, in, in business? Are they progressing well enough? The answer is a typical academic yes and no. So we we um what clearly we like all countries we there is a big skills gap in terms of um what's going to be required. I mean across technology generally, but mm. specifically uh, in AI, which when you're talking about you know being a, a machine learning a programmer that deep, you know a neural network um, expert, uh, deep learning expert, then we can't get enough of them at the moment and uh, it, it takes as I, I like to say it takes a long time to grow an AI professor right a long time like a consultant doctor you know I mean and so uh, we and the problem at the moment is in the big in the big tech industry will soak up any good AI people whatever stage of their career they're at yeah. you'll find a lot a lot of the top professors just can't they can't turn down the offers that they get. So it's really hard to retain. And then you've got to, for every PhD student you fund or master's student you fund, someone's got to teach them and supervise them, mm. right? You have to have the faculty and the, and the professors of all, you know, shapes and sizes um, to actually do that in the university. So we need a, we need a virtuous circle here of a, a healthy pipeline, some of whom stay in academia or people from industry go back into academia or, uh, and even if they go and, you know, um, take the, the money and, and go and work uh, for one of the big tech companies to encourage them to come back or at least build groups in the university that uh, are funded by the tech companies, you know, as they've done successfully in Canada. Uh, so we need we, we we can't what we're saying to the government at the moment is you can't think that with one round of skills funding you've mm. done it right this is a forever <laughs> because yeah. AI will evolve it won't all it, it, AI at the moment is equates to machine learning really natural language processing image processing but a lot you know there's a lot of that involved it's all about training machines on data whether it's supervised or unsupervised whatever however you do it in my in the early days when I was became a computer scientist I was doing a bit of AI then and it was all expert systems rule-based decision making yes. you know and and now it's 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 on machine it's machine but machine learning and and um uh, neural networks will only take us so far it will it will not be uh, there will be another uh, uh, innovation that's probably al almost certainly already in the research laboratories that will take us it was something to do with cognitive computing or brain brain computer interface brain human brain, brain computer interfaces or it will be it won't be machine learning it will be another form of AI that will take us on to the next stage of AI right. and, and so you, it's a constant refreshing looking at what skills are needed and refreshing that and the other thing I, I want to say is that I want to talk about one of the successes we have with the first AI review 
Um, the key thing for me is diversity. And of course, Brian, you've heard me talk about this a lot. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about it, but you beat me to it. <laughs> so, so, I mean, we've just done the two dames recording with uh, with Rebecca George. But, you know, I did a, I, all my time in since the, since the, uh, the late 80s when I went to computing. I've been trying to get more women into computing. Mm. Now, of course, I'm trying to get more women into AI. And um, diversity is so important. It's, and particularly in AI because of the potential for bias and unfair decision making um, and systems not working for everybody. And it's so, so important that we build some diversity into the system and, and not just say, well, that's a difficult problem. We don't know how to deal with it. We'll worry about it tomorrow. Um, and one of the so the first AI review, we recommended funding PhD um, scholarships, uh, fellowships, for the for the you know top end researchers and junior researchers, um, early career researchers I should say, um, we and we funded masters courses and industry said we need we need program we need extreme programmers so we had some industry uh, based uh, um, industry supported scholarships for masters courses at, um, various universities in the UK, but they were taking from a pipeline of uh, you know not very diverse maths and computer science students. And yeah. as for the one thing we did get into the um, first review um, that I really fought to get in was what we called conversion courses, which was not converting people from computer science to AI. It was converting people who weren't in STEM, so not computer science, not necessarily mathematicians, not not really scientists, not used to that sort of world, um, and training them to work, be able to work in the AI industry. And that was they were master's courses. They were advertised through the office for students um, before the I think the, the courses started the October before COVID. That was when the first courses ran, I think. And um, the, the condition of the funding, because the funding was largely for scholarship to go on to these master's courses. And they were designed in a way for returning people people we people who wanted to retrain or they could be straight from university but the key thing was that 50 percent of the scholarships had to go to underrepresented groups in particular women and BAME as we called it then maybe we call it people of color now but but um uh so 50 percent of the scholarships had to go to underrepresented groups and that's been incredibly successful they've mm. Uh, in attracting those underrepresented groups, you know, people from those in, into courses that will train them to work in AI in different types of ways. So I want to do a lot more of that in our new strategy. Um, I mean, that's absolutely excellent. And I was expecting you to bring this up. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm glad that you uh, beat me to it in many ways. Um, I was The last episode of this podcast was with Sue Black. And she was telling me about uh, Tech Up Women, which is a, a, a thing she's doing at Durham University with a very similar sort of aim to get it up to 50 percent. Um, in this case, it's, it's about gender. Right. But um, is your is yeah. your hope that that's actually going to continue? Yes. I mean, so we, as I said, I mean, I obviously know Sue very well and we talk about this a lot. Um, I am a huge admirer of what she does. Um, the initiative she gets going. Tech Mums, I think, was amazing. Yeah. Um, but the key thing, I, you know, because we are in this age where we are trying, you know, the woke age we need and, and quite rightly, we need to be inclusive across the board um, and have, you know, diversity is a very broad uh, thing. But but I keep reminding people that women are 52 percent of the population. So to aim for less than 50 percent, you're missing the mark. 
Right. Now, we are way <laughs> off that. And you know that the work the BCS yeah. has done in looking at this, you know, and, and there was a very, very scary report just came out from the Turing Institute, which was about the evidence that shows the gap, the skills gap between men and women in AI. And, and unfortunately, it is as bad, if not worse than we thought. Now, that, it makes it it sort of like makes it depressing reading. But at least now we have the evidence that says this is a real problem. And so we've got to try and change attitudes and we can only do it by giving incentives. I mean, if it were up to me, I'd just give anyone from an underrepresented group, give them a pay for their fees to do a course, degree course. Right. But but I, I don't think. I mean, that's what you see with the conversion MFCs. We did partly do that, but the, we got around the equal opportunities rules by saying that 50 percent of the scholarships had to be, go to underrepresented groups. But anyone can go for the other 50 percent. So it was, you know, um, your average white male or Asian male could go for those courses. Uh, but they um yeah, in AI, there's quite a lot of it's very interesting. You know, you're low on um, uh, sort of uh, Afro-Caribbean people, but quite high on Asian people in AI. It's interesting. Um, and yeah. But but, you know, this part I was just trying to make it sure that we anyone could apply for these studentships. But we were particularly trying to encourage and fund people from underrepresented groups. And that's what I want to do more of. Um, use that so that again for the PhD if we fund which we have to more PhD studentships more fellowships which will train people to become AI professors we have to make sure that 50% of that funding goes to underrepresented groups it's a fabulous model you know it will just make people look harder and uh, and make people describe their courses in a way that appeals to these uh, groups other than the, the normal uh, the, the you know the, the the standard type of a person that applies for these for this sort of is it attracted by this sort of in fact this is demonstrating the point then isn't it in, in the, the one of the problems as you mentioned earlier that people have with ai is embedded bias and that's often led by either the data that a system's trained on or the people that are putting the system together in the first place the teams that are putting it together but yeah. that systemic problem is reflected in the actual um, flow of people coming into the industry in the first place, it which means so we've got to get a hand on that very quickly, doesn't you've it? You've got to break that circle. Yeah. You have to break that circle. And systems will, we are all biased, right? There's nothing, you know, people, we, by human, you know, human nature yeah. is we all have different yeah. experiences, even within a, uh, a subgroup of, uh, you know, in the sort of census world of, you know, subgroup. Uh, we have different biases. Right? I mean, mm. you talk about gender, but uh, you have a bias. If you've had children or not had children, you, or you've got elderly parents and you don't have elderly parents, you've got a bias in terms yes. of how you think about things uh, just because of your life experience as well. And um, systems, you know, AI systems pick up on that bias because um, the data that uh, has been collected on which they're being trained will be inherently biased in one way or another. So we need to train people to spot those biases and check the output, you know, check the decisions that the system's making to check that they aren't biased against a particular group or, you know, a particular mm -hmm. culture. Um, yeah, and yeah. that's where you need diverse teams. That's really interesting stuff. So 
let's move on now. I want to talk to you about your book because yeah. I, this is really fascinating to me. So um, here's my here's my clever clever introduction. I always thought there was just one internet, but you talk about four. Yeah. So, <laughs> tell me about the four internets. <laughs> there could be more. So um, uh, thank you, Brian. So four internets, the book. It's uh, we've just seen it. Uh, the, the you know it's just just going off literally to the to the printing presses now. We've seen the actual um, the cover. I write. I wrote it with my colleague Kieran O'Hara. In fact, Kieran wrote. Wrote. Kieran's the writer and he and I work together but he does the writing if you like and then uh, we have ideas he goes away and writes we come back and discuss what he's written um, and it's an iterative process so I'm very much part of it but it you know he, he I have to give him absolutely the credit for being the, the writer I couldn't have another time or the uh, skill to do what he does um, and we wrote a paper um that was published in December 2018 called Four Internets. It was published by a, a Canadian think, ta- think tank, uh, CIGI, um, in Canada. Uh, and it was called Four Internets, and it was about the geo- potential geopolitical fragmentation of the internet. And our thesis in that paper, which is what we extend in the book, is that, yes, there is the... We call it the Silicon Valley Internet in the book. There's the Internet that Vint Cerf and Bob Kahn and all the other pioneers worked on. Vint and Bob developed TCPIP. That is to gave us the open, universal and free standards on which the computers basically talk to each other so that the Internet can operate. And the uh, and then, of course, Tim Berners-Lee developed the web the World Wide Web standards, HTML, HTTP, to run on top of that to enable us to share information on the, you know, on this Internet and everything that we know about and the fact that we're talking on Teams. It could be Zoom or whatever, TikTok. Um, and the most amazing thing to me at the moment, and I'll come back to the other Internets, is that last uh, March, when the whole world effectively went onto the Internet, it stayed up and running. Yeah. Tink, you know, re, re, resilient, robust, reliable. Yes, you might lose power, electricity, <laughs> and we often, and and you might lose your internet connection because the telecoms piece has gone down. But the actual internet, and the naming space, and the and the way it operates, um, it or it, it carried on operating, amazingly. Where would we have been without it in the last mm. uh, year? Um, and that's a huge testament to the pioneers who designed it. And a lesson learnt. So that was, and of course, it started out. And Vint describes this very well. Vint has written the forward for our book. I don't know if he talks about this in the forward, but he described it when they started. It was sort of a league of gentlemen, gentlemen friends, because there weren't any women around. <laughs> Not because he's anti-women, he isn't at all. But um, it was just a, it was a group of it was friends, right? Who behaved in a certain way, and no one thought about. I mean, if people did things badly, behaved badly, they were kicked out of the club, basically. That the the right. what they were doing, and the web started off like that as well. I mean, it was all. Uh, everything you know it was all open and we're going to democratize knowledge and uh, you know spread the work and give everyone access to knowledge and information and it'll all be yeah. wonderful because it hasn't quite worked out that way <laughs> and our argument in the book is that's very much to do with ge- culture and geopolitics and so the the other three internets we talk about in the book are 
uh, first of all, the you know, I just going around the world, really, we don't do it in this order in the book. There's what we call the, the DC Internet, which is really about led market force led the big as far as out the West is concerned. The big tech companies are in Silicon Valley. They, you know, they started the Google's, Facebook's, Twitter all started on the same set of standards, but have developed because the, into you know, the big companies they are. There's a whole thesis around why that happened. And they need to make money. That's what they do. They're companies, right? But they then lobby Washington to get the uh, laws and regulations that they want, need to keep on, you know, keep their shareholders happy. The whole world is looking at how do we tax Google? How do we tax Facebook? You know, and it's (laughs) and it's it's it's, you know, and if we try to do it, the Americans defend them. Right. And (laughs) and so net neutrality, you go up and down on net neutrality, depending on which government's in in Washington. And then we're rolling around the world. When you come to Europe, we call this the Brussels bourgeois Internet, which is a bit cheeky. But what Europe (laughs) has done is is gone very much on a data protection angle. So it's saying we have to, and it's really a, um, uh, a stand against the tech giants and saying, look, you use all our data to make money. So you have to protect, you have to protect our privacy and you cannot use the data uh, unless we allow you to. Um, Tim, of course, is, is doing the same, trying to do the same thing, but through a new architecture called Solid. But the and he was very much advising the Europe on what to do. But they, you know, with GDPR, they've taken a lead on data protection. But there's an argument that says this really um, disadvantages European companies. And we are now, of course, in the in the position where we're outside the Commission. We can make our own decisions now about this. But I don't think we're going to walk away from GDPR just like that. But um, um, and we certainly value privacy and security and trust in uh, data exchanges. But, you know, the, the European attitude is you can't you can't trade with us if you don't comply with GDPR. Um, yeah. So internally, in the European market, everyone complies with it. Uh, America, they will. And China, you know, they'll do what they have to do. Um mm. And uh, yeah, it's become an international standard, but it's only really applied in in Europe. And the other problem with it is it's incredibly bureaucratic you, and the fines are very hard. So if you're a small company who can't afford your own GDPR legal team, working out what you can and can't do is really difficult. So it does in my um, it has huge, huge strengths and it's very laudable, but it does, in my view, stifle innovation. And then, of course, you keep rolling further around the world. You come to China, which from the very get go recognized what the Internet might mean because they they got it a bit later than us and the Web. And so they could see it was a way to a disseminate information, but it was also a way for citizens to get information. And I say this quite glibly, but the only way to change a government in a country like China is to have a revolution. It doesn't happen very often. And so one of the main things the government's got to do is stop talk of revolution. So they <laughs> I'm simplifying it. I'm not a, a politics expert, but it's, it's, it's you know, we we are still ostensibly in democracies. And so if we don't like our government and what they're doing, we can vote them out. And that, you know, we've got the whole issue about democracy and what the Internet's doing to democracy that we could discuss. But in China, there is no no um uh never has been a culture of any sort of voting and democracy and so basically they from the very beginning of the internet they the the chinese government have watched what's happening and have censored it to meet you know to make sure people aren't using it for 
nefarious ends. And actually, they also have tougher laws about if you if you break if you if you commit a crime on the internet or you you know you you defraud someone on the internet or you bully someone there are all sorts of laws we don't have which we might not accept although we've seen during covid we are prepared to accept some things we've none yeah. of us had have had our liberty for the last year but that's another issue philosophical but it, you know so in China, they've set it up so that if you operate an internet company in China, you, basically you have to allow the Chinese government to have access to the data that you are collecting. And also they're having the same problems with the big techs. You've seen what's happened with Alibaba recently. Mm-hmm. So they have some of those issues too, but it's we call it a paternalistic state uh, because actually in some ways, if you're prepared to accept that you don't have freedom of speech and that you you know accept the and, and you know, in, in Chinese culture is very different to ours. So they never have had that freedom in a way. So they subvert it in different ways. But but basically, if you're prepared to accept that, then actually in, in, in many ways and accept the control of the government, the Internet is a safer place to be in China than it is in the West. Because it's harder for criminals to do things. It's harder for people to be bullied and trolled and you know because they have they're beginning to introduce a social credit system where you get marks yeah. for good behavior yeah. and i always thought and we talk about it a bit in the book you could do that in a democracy but you do it in a different way i mean we do it with with um, banking we have credit you know we have credit systems don't we check check your credit in banking are you work can you le- lend money to this person and, and and but we need it to be in a way that doesn't curtail freedom of speech but you know those issues around what people say on Twitter and I mean what you know, we we ended up last year with Twitter the company Twitter blocking the Twitter account of the democratically elected president of the United States now who would have thought we'd ever have got into that position and it's all to do with personalities and politics and the power of the big you know, it's such a big issue for us to discuss. So those are the four internets, but we talk about others potentially. There are, you know, potentially others down the line and um, that could emerge and different types. So what we try and make the point is there's a big technical story here and how the internet works is a comp- no, very few people understand how it actually works. <laughs> it isn't owned by anybody. No. Right. It's not owned by a, a single country or um, a single company. It's actually of us. So there are three, you know, you've got governments, you've got the, the tech companies and you've got us as, as civilians, you know, citizens um, in whichever political area you live in. You know, we as um, web science, which is my other passion, you know, the interdisciplinary study of the of the web shows us that we this is all co-created between people and machines. It wasn't just the machines created Facebook or even Mark Zuckerberg. We because we like it, we we put stuff on and we co-create this these uh, these social machines, as we call them. So it's a very complicated story. And we try to lay out, you know, this is how it operates. This is the history. This is how it works. These are the different cultures. And 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 then we think about where this might go in the future. I mean, that's really interesting. And I, you just from my personal experience, I, I, I first went to China in 2016 and um, they were way ahead of most of the stuff that we were doing here in, in, in terms of um, I'm, to- I'm talking about basic infrastructure stuff like um, wide, widely available Wi-Fi broadband, 
um, 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 wireless payment through their phones. Everyone was doing that. I've barely already, even seen it. They're already cashless in in yeah. Beijing, yeah. and they they develop the digital currency. Yeah, yeah, it's very they're very advanced in that sense. Doesn't that provide a present a problem in itself as well, though? That the, the the speed. So you've already described the speed of operation in Europe is by definition slower than anything else because it's much more bound up with with, with policies. It were and in China they're very quick because it's top down. In Washington it's about the power of the dollar. Where yeah. does that where does that lead everything? Well, uh, what we argue in the book basically is that we have to accept there are different cultures that lead to these different ecosystems and they've got to coexist. In, in some ways, you know, we have to have global agreement. Our, our argument in the book is that you it, it all breaks down if you break the technical standards, which countries like China have had a go at, you know, um, to change the technical standards to make them more granular so that it's easier to switch bits of the internet on and off and you know have more control of it as 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 well as having some advantages but our argument is if you if you change the technical standards so they're not accepted by every country everywhere in the world then you you do break the internet stops being an internet Mm. because you can't the whole point of the internet is any computer anywhere you are in the world can connect to this basic this network system um, if you break that, then then all bets are off as to, you know, what we do in the next pandemic or trade or anything. So we argue for that. But we argue also then that the we have to respect we can't. You know, there was an argument, there was an idea. And I think it still exists a bit in Silicon Valley is that the you know, we talked about in the early days, the democratization of knowledge. We also talked about maybe the Internet you know through the web would lead to more countries being democracies do you remember the arab spring and how you know that backfired badly Mm -hmm. um and um you know i think that and that you know we we do discuss this a bit in the book the whole you know how things operate in the middle east is very different again how things operate in russia is very different again we don't argue their internets as such but um but we have to these these different cultures and uh, have to coexist in 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 um in on in the internet and it's um I liken it sometimes to um you know uh, the climate change you have to have uh, for different reasons you've got to have everybody at the table to talk about climate change otherwise you're not going to have any effect there is no point in having a conference on climate change if China and India aren't there, for example. And I'm not comparing the two. I'm just saying because they're so big. Right. <laughs> and that's that's true in the Internet, too. We have a, a great I think it's one of the best things Kieran's ever written, the fabulous chapter in the book called about India, the Internet in India. And we call it the swing state. And the argument here is that in 2019, it, we, we, it was estimated that we'd reached the 50-50 point on the Internet where about 50% of the world had access to the internet if they could afford the bills and um, technically could get access. So that means, which is great, you know, it's amazing achievement in 30 years since Tim developed the web, but um, it means there's 50% of the world still to come onto the internet. Mm. And that 50% is largely in rural China, rural India and rural Africa. Now, we all know the way it will, it, we're not going to change China and suddenly make them a democracy overnight. Or they're, not, they're just not going to accept that. As some people in Silicon Valley still seem to think. Um, and China is hugely influential in Africa in terms of uh, putting in the uh, infrastructure for the Internet uh, and creeping around the edges of Europe, too. Um, but India, India is, is, is a democracy. 
it's one point uh, just about to overtake China, isn't it? It's one point four million coming up or hmm? billion. Did I say billion? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just about to overtake. They're, they're 1.4 billion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so China and India together are about to a third of the world or perhaps a bit more. I can't mm-hmm. remember. But we add Africa in and you're, you're getting um, over 50 percent of the of the planet. And really, so if if uh, so, India is a democracy and has 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 done very well using the Aadhaar number to roll out the internet and digital identity to you know to far and wide and giving people cheap mobile phones um, in rural areas to get onto the internet. It's an amazing job, but it's a democracy that tends towards an autocracy. And there's a you know they do have a habit of turning the internet off if there is a flare up somewhere like on the Kashmir border and you know if uh, that's why we call it the swing state because we and maybe these two uh, systems will coexist in India but they do have both they do have sort of the western ideals but they also have the autocratic tendencies it's very interesting to see how India will go in terms of uh, how the future development of the internet on a global scale Obviously, there's hours of material that we can talk about here, right, Wendy? So <laughs> basically, people it, uh, it should uh, get the book. Get the book, yeah, no. That's <laughs> and the message. Actually, I have to say, I'm unbelievably pleased. It's incredibly well priced. Uh, so although it's a, you know, it's um, it's a textbook, and it's not um, it's not a coffee table book. Um, there aren't many pictures in it. <laughs> uh, but it's it's accessible, you know, for the average lay reader who's interested in technology or politics or international relations. And I think in I think it's only going to be about sixteen pounds in the UK. Well, I'll be I'll be reading that. I'll, I'll be keeping a keen eye out for it. Well, can I say thank you very much for speaking to us today? That's been really enjoyable. Um, we've appreciated you sharing your thoughts with us there. So thank you for for joining us on the podcast. It's always um, a pleasure to talk to you, Brian.